From CAFE, welcome to CAFE Insider. I'm Preet Bharara. And I'm Ann Milgram. Hi, Ann. How are you? Good morning. So there's um, there's one topic on everyone's mind, and it's the passing of one of the most influential people in the country, one of the most important people in the country, and we'll find out how important soon as we talk about the consequences of her passing. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is no longer with us. Yeah, it was a it was a very sad day, I think. So, Anne, before we get into the life and times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and all the fallout, I want to make a, a couple of announcements at the top. One is, you know, it's an important story about the law and about the country. And so for that reason, there's no paywall on this episode of the Cafe Insider, because we want as many people as possible to hear what we have to say about this story. But of course, it's not a one-week story. We're going to keep covering it as it develops. There will no doubt be a very contentious confirmation fight, perhaps the most contentious ever. And so if folks want to hear future episodes, you can become a member, as you know, at cafe.com slash insider. And one more announcement, Anne, and it'll be another opportunity for us to talk about not just the Supreme Court vacancy, but also the election. We're doing a special thing next week, aren't we? Yes, we're doing a Stay Tuned Live happy hour event with all the hosts from the different Cafe Insider shows. That includes Lisa Monaco, Ken Weinstein, John Carlin, and Ellie Honig. Folks should know that the event will be via Zoom, which is basically how we do everything in life <laughs> these days. <laughs> so save the date. It's Thursday, October 1 at 6.30 p.m., not a.m. We're not early morning people. And that's Eastern time, 6.30 p.m. Eastern time. If you already received cafe emails, we sent out an invite. If you don't and you want to join the happy hour, head to cafe.com slash preet and sign up and we'll send you an invite. I'm looking forward to it. So, you know, on Friday night, I guess it shouldn't have come as a complete shock because everyone has known that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been having medical issues uh, and fighting cancer, but it kind of felt shocking. I mean, I don't know where you were exactly. I think we were probably texting a little bit later after the news broke. I saw the news on Twitter, didn't immediately believe it. And then I started yelling and my, my daughters thought I was having a heart attack because it did come as, as, a, as a blow. Yeah, I was I was shocked by it. I mean, I think part of it is that she has battled cancer before and won. And while I knew that she was sick, and I thought, oh, it sounds very serious, I hadn't understood it to be imminent or that she was that ill. And so I was I was putting our six year old to bed, and my husband came in, and I could tell someone had died. I didn't know who, but I said, you know, what happened, and and he told us, and. It, it just, I don't know, I don't know how you felt, Preet, but it hit me really hard. And it's obviously been a tough year. You know, she's a hero to me, and it's its a tough time to lose a hero, particularly in the political environment that we live in. But, you know, I'll just tell one, one quick story. My con law professor, when I got to NYU School of Law, was Burt Newborn. And Professor Newborn was the deputy to Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she was the head of the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU. And we're going to talk about it in a couple minutes, but I would argue that the most critical work that Justice Ginsburg did on her career was actually did during her career was not actually on the court, but was the work she did in the 1970s, where she argued, I think it was six Supreme Court cases related to gender discrimination and equality. And so he had literally had a front row seat. And so day in and day out, you know, in in the first year of law school, you don't know what's going on. You're you're trying to learn how to read a case. And here was this professor telling us about someone 
later to be Justice Ginsburg, who basically used the law as a tool for fairness and equality. And it was just the most inspiring story. And it's always stayed with me. And I'll tell you one other thing. It also stayed with me because obviously she did a lot of litigation under the due process and equal protection clauses of the United States Constitution, the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments. So basically, and Professor Newborn himself had done First Amendment cases. So in con law, I basically used the First, Fifth, and Fourteenth Amendments. Then when I got to DOJ and was prosecuting some civil rights cases and people were talking about the Fourth Amendment, I was like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> so <laughs> like the Eighth Amendment, what? So I did, of course, learn those, but I really, I, I think it was it was really transformational for me as a law student. And I've, I've really followed her closely since then. Yeah, obviously she's, you know, a huge figure in the law and particularly at my alma mater, Columbia Law School, to which she transferred at some point during her law school career. I, I have a personal story that's unrelated to the law. When we were living in Bethesda, Maryland, when I was working in the Senate, one of our neighbors and friends of ours is Ruth Bader Ginsburg's niece. And so about, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago, my family and the Ginsburg family, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Marty, who was still her husband, uh, beloved husband who was still alive then, had a nice little intimate Seder. And I remember thinking, my kids were too young to appreciate that they were dining with a Supreme Court justice. We were talking about it on Friday night after we got the, the news. And my oldest has some memory of the Seder, but didn't appreciate that it was that Ruth Bader Ginsburg who was at the dinner. And I'll tell you, and this is testimony that most people will give, she is an utterly lovely, was an utterly lovely person. And the dynamic between her and Marty was just wonderful. And not everyone appreciates, if you don't hear her speak, how funny she is. She's actually hilarious. Yeah, well, she she comes across as serious, of course, and very thoughtful. And so, you know, I've watched a couple of her graduation speeches in the past week and sort of talk she's given. She is very funny with sort of a wry sense of humor. But there's some great stories also from her former clerks about playing jokes in the courthouse um, in the Supreme Court and she was both an amazing and, and historic and heroic figure, and I think a warrior for equality and changing the law in our country for the better. But she's also, you know, obviously a cultural icon and somebody who, I mean, one of the things I've been struck by, Preet, and I don't I don't know if you've been struck by it too, but, you know, she's she passed away at 87, and there are all these young girls, you know, doing these really beautiful tributes to her, writing letters that they're hand-delivering to the Supreme Court you know, putting things, sort of giving things to their their moms and dads to post about about Justice Ginsburg. And, you know, that, that includes very young girls, obviously through young women and women and men too. But it's just, it's really inspiring to me to see how much she's moved people, particularly the younger generation, which I think is just awesome. Yeah. I mean, the other reason, I guess, there was some dissonance when we learned that she had passed was she kind of had this reputation for being indestructible. She would go to the hospital, she would come out, she would uh, read briefs in the hospital, she would participate in conferences with her colleagues on the court, sometimes from the hospital. And every time you got news that she was ill or that she was going to seek treatment, you worried and thought, you know, is this going to be okay? And every single time, and it happened a lot, it was until, until it wasn't. Do you remember the Stephen Colbert show where he went to the she I do, had to a the personal gym. trainer. Yeah, so he went to the gym with her and she was doing push-ups and he was like, I think he was on his knees. And she was like, why are you on your knees? Like, come on, like, do a real push-up. Do you ever listen to music to get all jacked up before you work out? 
I listen to mostly opera recordings. Oh, okay. Can I recommend a great workout song? I think you might enjoy this one. This. I remember being so charmed by that. And also, you know, just a tribute to her fierceness and her tenacity to watch her, you know, rock it out with her big personal trainer in the Supreme Court gym. So there's some some great memories. I echo what you said about what a profound impact she had even before she was on the court, you know, both on the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and on the Supreme Court. But obviously she had a big role to play on the court itself, uh, sometimes in the majority, but quite often in the dissent. And it's commonplace these days to always modify a Ginsburg dissent with the word fiery. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. they, although she she did not, you know, come across as a fiery person. She's quiet and measured and very deliberate. The language was was often, I guess, appropriately described as fiery. And she read some of them from the from the bench, which is really unusual. In the Supreme Court, usually, you know, they hear oral arguments in person. Both sides will come and make arguments to the justices. But then when the opinions are issued as a rule, they're just issued, right? They just come out as paper documents, obviously online as well. But, you know, she took the opportunity on more than one occasion to actually take to to the bench in the Supreme Court to basically go out publicly and read and read her dissents and to really sort of punctuate how strongly she felt and how concerned she was that she would go out and do that. So, so before we start talking about the controversy that follows from her passing, because there's a lot to talk about there, I think we should take a few minutes not just to talk about her personality and her iconic status, but the impact she had on the law, as you described, starting way back in the 1970s. Yeah. I mean, I think we all think about her as a Supreme Court justice and a, and a really prominent liberal crusader, but it's really important to go back to sort of, I think, the critical work of her career, which was this work in the 70s where she was one of the co-founders and leaders of the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU. And one of the first cases she worked on was a case called Reed versus Reed, where a mother had sought to be the executor of her deceased son's estate. And the law, the Oregon law at the time said only men could be the executor of the estate. And so she challenged this um, and the court struck down, struck down the law basically saying that women had a right to be under the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, that women had a right to be executors as well. And it's really important to understand that the language of the Constitution is the language of equality, equal rights for all. The 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause literally says that, you know, people have to be treated equally. And yet there were countless examples across the United States of laws that didn't do that. And so that's one example where it related to being an executor. There are other examples, and it was it was inch by inch. And so I think it's important for people to understand, like, sometimes you don't see the arc of the importance of decisions and work at once. It's kind of like there were countless cases that she brought. And then we talked about this before, but she argued these six cases before the Supreme Court, Frontiero, Hogan. Like there's a ton of cases in which she basically goes to the Supreme Court and says women should be treated equally. And some in which she says men should be treated equally, right? Well, that was like, a strategic decision she made that people have been talking about and have obviously talked about it her whole life. She wanted to make the old school male justices understand that there was discrimination. And sometimes to get through to them, you had to explain that there were laws 
that discriminated on the basis of sex against men. And in fact, there's a there's a whole movie which I watched. I never got around to watching it before. I watched it over the weekend. Have you have you seen it on the basis of sex? Which is I haven't seen it yet. I'd love to is, see it. Which is premised on one of these cases that she argued in which the the victim of discrimination was a man. Because he was a man, he he wasn't allowed to take a tax deduction for the money he spent paying a caretaker for his 89-year-old mother, and that person was his dependent, a single woman in the same situation would have been entitled to the tax break. So the victim in that case of discrimination was a man, so she could make her point. But obviously, the victory in that case then was able to spearhead you know, other claims for for women. The other interesting thing about that, which I hadn't known before, that case, Moritz, was the first time a provision of the IRS code was declared unconstitutional. What makes it actually particularly lovely is she did the case with her husband, Marty, who was probably one of the premier tax lawyers in the country as well. Yeah, it's such a great story that he argued the tax part of the case and she argued the equal protection part. There's another case also where there was a United States military spousal benefit that only the wives of members could get could get a benefit. So if the man was the member of the military, the wife could get benefits, but it wasn't available the opposite way. So if the woman was the member of the military, the husband, spouse, did not get the benefits. And so it was really strategic in basically trying to make this argument that all people are equal. And she was appealing to the fact that at the time it was an all-male Supreme Court. And so she was appealing to the fact that, like, it can't be right that men don't have the same rights as women. And so it was a clever way of basically getting people to individually understand the perils of inequality. And I think, like, you know, her work, when she started the Equal Protection Clause, discrimination based on sex, on gender, was seen, it was the lowest level scrutiny that the court would give, meaning you had to be able to give a reason for it, but it wasn't a high hurdle to meet. So discrimination was being allowed. And there are countless ways in which it impacted women. We just gave a couple of those, including unequal pay. I mean, there's there's a lot of ways in which this was, it's really hard in some ways for us to even imagine what the world was like, even just 50 years ago. But you go forward to what Ginsburg did, which is like she just chipped away slowly one case at a time to get the court to a higher level of scrutiny for sex discrimination until it became intermediate scrutiny, meaning that when cases go before the court, there's a higher burden to prove you have to have a much greater reason to justify discrimination, which basically meant that a lot of the laws, like overwhelmingly the laws got struck down because they couldn't make that argument that there was a strong reason to basically be doing something differently as it relates to men or women. And so that is a lasting, like that is a huge change in in constitutional law and litigation that I think we take for granted today. But the reason that you can't pass laws that discriminate against women based on sex overtly is Justice Ginsburg. And it really has changed the face of, I think, particularly of work for women and the ability of women to have equal opportunities in America. Yeah, people have been making the parallel to the life and career of Thurgood Marshall, long before he came to the Supreme Court, he had a super impressive and distinguished career fighting for racial justice. And so those are two examples. You don't see a lot of examples of that. You see examples of people who have mostly been judges their entire careers. And here you have in both Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, astonishing careers in advocacy and tremendous impact that was then rewarded by two different presidents and brought them to the Supreme Court so they could continue that work. And they had experience as, you know, very aggressive and smart 
and talented litigators before the court itself. Yeah, and went on both of them to be amazing Supreme Court justices and to have authored in a lot of critical opinions. And so I think I think it's a great point. Um, I also personally, I, I really like the idea of practitioners on the Supreme Court. I think it's much more connected to the practice of law and to the world at large than just having, you know, sort of academics who become judges or people who work in politics who become judges right away. I mean, I like that model a lot. Although we haven't had, you know, we, this is maybe conversation for after there's a Supreme Court pick. There hasn't been a non-judge selected for the Supreme Court in some time. Once upon a time, you might see somebody who hadn't been a judge and who had been practicing politics. I think we haven't had it in a long while. Earl Warren, obviously, is a prime example of that. Yeah, I, I personally think there's a lot to be said for it. We're not going to see it here. Trump is going to nominate <laughs> somebody who who is an existing circuit judge. And part of it goes to the confirmation process, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But but I think, and to the political sort of litmus tests that I think are being people are being put through now to go on the court. And I, I really dislike it. And I think, I don't think it's great for America, but I do think it's exactly what we're going to see, what we're going to see here. Because remember, they've already been confirmed. And so arguably all the sort of dirty laundry, if there is any, or their positions on cases and precedent and Roe v. Wade, we'll talk about all that, ha- are are well known, um, or at least known to some extent. And they've also issued opinions. And so I think, you know, that's the world that we, that we unfortunately live in today. You know, and then of course, when Ginsburg got on the court, these issues of racial discrimination and preferential treatment continued because she hadn't solved every problem in America, despite doing a lot for the cause. I guess one of the most famous opinions she's known for is a case of United States versus Virginia that related to the Virginia Military Institute that at the time did not allow women in. And she got to write the majority opinion and sometimes sort of rare to see a seven to one decision in favor of the United States. Yeah, it's a hugely important decision. VMI excluded women and had proposed setting up this sort of separate women's college. And so what she basically said was that having a women's only institution would not cure the constitutional violation under the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause and that gender action requires, quote, exceedingly persuasive justification to basically discriminate. And so, you know, this is one of the most important opinions, I think, written by the Supreme Court on equality and sex discrimination. And it really, I think it goes down as probably one, if not the most important opinion she wrote. Yeah. And it's also nice because it follows the trajectory of her work. And so both symbolically and substantively, I think it was an important thing that she was on the court and she wrote the opinion. Yeah. Another one of my favorite um, cases where, you know, she, she wrote a lot of powerful dissents. And I think she got nicknamed Notorious RBG, which of course is a play on the rapper Notorious B.I.G. She got nicknamed that because of her dissents, because, you know, at some point the court turns 5-4 Republican, five Republicans to four Democrats. And there there are a number of cases that come out that are that she disagrees very strongly with. I mean, they're just to name a couple, the Lily Ledbetter versus Goodyear Tire case where Justice Alito wrote the majority and denied the complainant's right to equal pay under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, um, arguing that she'd basically filed the complaint after the existing time frame. And basically, Justice Ginsburg had a very, very strong dissent. She called out the fact that the majority was made up of all men and said, quote, the court does not comprehend or is indifferent to the insidious way in which 
women can be victims of pay discrimination. Really, really important case. She was on the losing side of that case, but that was very powerful. There was a law that was passed um, by Congress to address it. But, you know, again, just a hugely important statement by Justice Ginsburg as part of her dissent. And we should just say one thing, which is dissents can be really important. They often pave the way for future court decisions. They can pave the way for congressional laws like they did in the Ledbetter case. And so the importance of her sort of fiery dissents, I think, can't be under underappreciated. Yeah, there's another one. Shelby County v. Holder. We've talked about that case on the show before. A civil rights case, voting rights case, in which... The court decided essentially, and I'm grossly simplifying here, we no longer have to require states to receive preclearance to change their voting rules because racism is dead and discrimination is over and we don't have to worry anymore. And even though bipartisan majorities in Congress had voted to reauthorize these acts, the Supreme Court by a narrow 5-4 margin, the majority opinion written by John Roberts, said, nope, don't need to do that anymore. And that is one of the things you're seeing playing out in various jurisdictions in the country now, where there are obstacles to to people being able to vote. There is a suppression of the vote in communities of color. So a very important decision that went, in my view, the wrong way from 2013. There's a famous quote from Ginsburg's dissent in which she said, quote, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great quote. Um, and one last case, just to quickly note before we talk about sort of what comes next, is the Hobby Lobby case from 2014. Again, Alito writing the majority and basically said that, you know, you can't force private companies, you can't require them to pay for birth control and emergency contraception for their employees. And Ginsburg dissented um, very powerfully and said, you know, this will disadvantage those employees, quote, who do not share their employer's religious beliefs. And she also noted that that there's a cost barrier to birth control. And I think it's really important because we're going to see, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, but the changes that will come as a result of if there's a 6-3 majority, Republican majority on the Supreme Court, this is exactly where the court will come back to. And Alito has already written this case, and I would argue that, you know, we should all be braced for an extension of these types of prohibitions and these types of restrictions. And so she made her voice heard on a lot of really, really critical cases. Um, and I think, you know, there are a lot of themes that we've now talked about voting. We've talked about um, equal pay. We've talked about um, health care access and birth control, women's right to choose. And I think that this is, um, we've talked about, you know, sex discrimination. And I think what what this is like, just sort of foreshadowing what we're about to see, this is part of the debate in the country now going forward. So obviously we have to get to what comes next. And one of the most heart-wrenching things to hear on Friday night was a note, a statement that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, shortly before she passed, dictated to her granddaughter, Clara, in which she said, quote, My most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. Which, by the way, President Trump uh, trashed that statement and questioned the truthfulness of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's granddaughter in a show of utter classlessness, as usual. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure, I have no question that Justice Ginsburg said it. What I find particularly sort of 
interesting about it is that she said new president, right? Which basically means like not Trump being reelected, but like someone new, meaning probably Joe Biden. Um, and obviously, I think she was saying like, I, I don't think that's exactly what she was saying, but it, it's an interesting choice of words instead of saying, wait until after the, the election is over and the president is sworn in in January, basically saying like a new president. Yeah. I mean, look, people may recall that Ginsburg got into a little bit of trouble back in 2016 during the campaign when she said, as a sitting Supreme Court justice, negative things about Donald Trump, for which she later apologized. So she obviously has strong feelings about things and felt strongly about about this. So let's talk about the context that we're in. Everyone is still, not everyone, but I guess people on the Democratic side are still very raw about how Merrick Garland was treated. Recall that he was nominated because there was a vacancy because Justice Scalia passed away in early 2016, an election year, but early in an election year. And people presumed that Merrick Garland would be not only confirmed, but at least get a vote, at least get courtesy meetings with senators. And none of those privileges were accorded to him. Mitch McConnell made very clear right from the early get-go that in his mind, when there's an election coming, you wait till the election and see who the new president is going to be. And in this case, there was definitely going to be a new president because it was Barack Obama's second term. Now, Mitch McConnell, at the time, in fairness to him, although he mostly played up the precedent, he mostly played up the angle of, you know, anytime there's a presidential election, you wait if it's in the same year. He did say on the floor this other distinction and this sort of narrower point that that is true in his mind when the Senate is held by a party different from the president. But that's not what a lot of other senators said. A lot of other senators said very flatly, and we'll come to, and Lindsey Graham is one of them, that in an election year, a nominee should not be confirmed, making no distinction between circumstances where the Senate was held by one party or another party. Yeah. I mean, I think a couple points on that. Mitch McConnell's speech, and we should talk about this, Scalia died February 13th, 2016, the very same day McConnell makes a statement. And he says the American people should have a a voice um, in the next Supreme Court justice, so we should wait until there's a new president. And that is basically saying, like, look, it's the last year. Um, that, in my view, is very far out. I mean, I I don't know when the primary election started that year, but, like, you're talking about, like, the primary Hillary Clinton hadn't been selected as a nominee yet. Like, the election had not really begun in February. And so his argument is, oh, we're going to wait all these months, essentially almost a year until the new president comes in, which is a very long time. But we're going to wait because the American people get to decide. Now, the heart of the argument is the people should understand that there's a, there's a vacancy. They should vote in the next election like how they want the Supreme Court seat to be filled. He also said in 2016, This is a unique circumstance, and you'd have to go back to 1888 when Grover Cleveland was president to find the last time a, a vacancy created in a presidentially elected year was approved by a Senate of a different party. That's not an argument on principle in in my mind. And so I think you're right to be fair to him to say like, yes, he made this distinction in 2016 and he did. But that is really just a tactical sort of who holds the political power analysis, which is to say, you know, like, look, when the president and the, the senator are owned by the same party, 
that's one thing. But when the president and the Senate are not owned by the same party, you got to go back 130 years to find somebody confirmed. But again, that's the outcome of what happened. That's not the principle. Like the principle, I think that he and Graham and others argued was this, like the American people should decide. So I have a couple of reactions to what you said, just to be clear. (laughs) I'm being fair to Mitch McConnell, which is an odd sentence. I'm being fair to Mitch McConnell insofar as he is not being as hypocritical today as Lindsey Graham and others were in 2016. Because because he he is make I, I'm not saying that his argument is correct. I'm not saying it's good for America. I'm not saying it's good for the Supreme Court. I am saying he's a more clever person than some of the rest of these folks. And so he is on the record as making this distinction between the Senate being in control of the party that's opposite of the president. So when he says that today, it's not made up out of whole cloth. At the end of this conversation, we, we will likely conclude that in fact, the person who stated the principle that's at play here the best is the president, who said, basically, if you have the votes, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Which, which yeah. you know, in some it's ways- basically the, It's basically yeah. what it comes down to, yes. He kind of said it. Meanwhile, all these other folks are trying to put the, you know, the patina of, you know, constitutionality and precedent and reasonableness and everything else. At the end of the day, the argument is, if you've got the votes- you can do whatever you want. The rest of you can go to hell. The president is right on that. And so that's that's why when you go back and you look at the last hundreds of years of Supreme Court nominations and confirmations, you know, when the party in power is the Senate and the president are aligned, the nominees generally get through. When the president and the Senate are not aligned in the last year before an election, they more often than not do not get through. And that includes that includes Merrick Garland. And so Yes, but let's talk about Lindsey Graham because I think I think he is there's a reason like he's galvanized so much anger and frustration is because I mean it's completely duplicitous what where he has gone from in tw- in 2016 to where he is now in in 2020. Do you want to walk us through the quotes? Yeah, and I have some views about this. I've been thinking about it a lot because he didn't have to say these things. So he said in in the beginning of 2016 in March of 2016 at a judiciary committee hearing, quote, and I've been tweeting this every every day because there's no, there's no weasel, un, unlike Mitch McConnell, he can't weasel out of this. He had to take the position in the last few days that he changed his mind. Not that, oh, he's been consistent all along. Mitch McConnell's saying I've been consistent all along. Lindsey Graham has to say I changed my mind because what he said is incontrovertible back in 2016, quote. I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. There's no getting out of that. And then not only did he say it then, then we got a Republican president in Donald Trump. And then he said at the Atlantic Festival in 2018, on October 3rd of 2018, quote, If... An opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term, and the primary process is started, we'll wait to the next election. And I've got a pretty good chance of being the judiciary. You're on the record. Yeah. All right. Hold the tape. Well, the primary process not only started, The election over. started. People are the voting. Election, people have started voting, I people think, are on voting. the day that, that Ginsburg passed away. Yeah. There's, I there's mean, no I think this is a really important that. point. Yes. 
people have voted and people are voting and we are in the middle, literally in the middle of a presidential election right now. Um, and so I don't, I don't see any way he can get around it. Um, he's tried to say things like, well, the Democrats started problems. Like it's, well, we should go through that. What did he say? We should go through it. Yes. He said two things. He said, there've been changes because he can't say I'm consistent. Yeah. So it's always important. I think and you and I do this a lot, but I just want to sort of explain to folks. It's always important to sort of go through, you know, what's his argument, right? Like, what is he, what is he saying? And he's basically now saying that the two biggest changes regarding the Senate and judicial confirmations that have occurred in the last decade have come from Democrats. First, he says, Harry Reid, who is the Senate Majority Leader, a Democrat, changed the rules to allow a simple majority vote for circuit court nominees, which was true. And Chuck Schumer, quote, Chuck Schumer and his friends in the liberal media conspired to destroy the life of Brett Kavanaugh and hold that Supreme Court seat open. Now, I just will point out, Brett Kavanaugh is a Supreme Court justice. Um, he is. He went through, a, yeah, he is, and he went through a difficult confirmation process because I would argue there were sufficient evidence to warrant that level of scrutiny. In fact, I would argue he should have had more scrutiny. There should have been more of an investigation into his prior actions um, when there were questions as to whether or not he had been truthful. But that second one just is completely, there's no argument to make for that. Like, basically, it's saying, like, you yeah, treated me badly. Like, right. yeah, it's like it's like high school. Like, well, you weren't nice to me, so I'm not going to be nice to you. But it's not about being nice. It's about there is a legitimate basis to have a fair and thorough process. Like, the Supreme Court is a huge huge lifetime appointment. It's the it's the most important court in the United States of America. Like, I don't know how you can possibly argue. And by the way, Graham has been, as a Judiciary Committee member, grilled Democrats in the same way that Kavanaugh was was grilled. So that that lacks all merit. The second, what do you make of this sort of circuit argument? And maybe we should explain to folks like the filibuster piece yeah, a little. I don't think I don't think it's I don't think it's even as complicated as that. Because the reasons he, he has to come up with reasons because he has to explain why he's changed his mind. Both of those things that he says are the causes for his changing his mind from October 3rd of 2018. Both of those things had already happened, right? Harry Reid had changed the rules on filibustering circuit court nominees years earlier, even before he made that statement. And the supposed mistreatment of Brett Kavanaugh also happened before the October 3rd, 2018 statement by Lindsey Graham. In fact, Kavanaugh was set to be confirmed three days later. So even on its face, as a matter of time sequence, Lindsey Graham is trying to you know, put some face on it to, to try to explain the sort of uh, you know, raw assertion of power. But, but he can't do it because those things have already happened. And as you point out, on the substantive basis, I don't know why they're linked to each other. You know, th- there's this way in which you guys have done bad things with respect to the nomination process, so I am now gonna undo my word now that I'm the Judiciary Committee chairman, you know, he's basically saying what Donald Trump is saying, except he doesn't have the guts to say it. And that is, when you have the votes, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, that that's completely right. And the filibuster piece is just, you know, it used to be that you needed you needed 60 votes or more in order to basically be able to get a nomination through. And that was because that's what you needed to to break a filibuster, which is when we've all, you know, seen Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Someone just stands up and talks and talks and talks and can go on forever. And basically that can stop a nomination from going forward. And the idea with the circuit courts was to have it be a simple majority vote, 51 votes, and you get confirmed. And that has been used by Democrats and Republicans. You know, I, I think 
this is a slightly separate conversation about that, but I don't think this nomination has nothing to do with that filibuster action on circuit courts at, at all. I mean, and we should also point out that there is there are a number of circuit courts throughout the United States. There's one Supreme Court. It is the highest court in the land. It is a lifetime appointment, and it just deserves a different level of treatment and respect and and analysis. And so, th- but but just to be clear, like Graham is just, he's what I think people do and, and frankly are justified in hating about politicians, which is that he just literally flip-flopped in plain view. He can't make any of these arguments with a straight, a straight face, but you're right. It comes down to they have the votes and so they intend to take advantage of it. Can I make another observation about this? Because it's been it's been bugging me. Because because Lindsey Graham's a smart guy, right? He didn't have to say those things, and so I started thinking to myself, why is Lindsey Graham saying those things in 2016? Why is he saying it again in 2018? And it occurs to me, there's two reasons. One is he actually somewhere either feels bad about what they did to Merrick Garland, or wants to earn chits with the reasonable middle, with independents and others, and say, hey, look, we did this thing. But it's a rule of neutral application. And if this happens again in 2020, you guys can do the same thing to us, right? It it bespeaks a need to try to explain and rationalize to reasonable people who are angry about the Merrick Garlic treatment, I think, look, you know, the door swings both ways. And it's good for us. It's good for you. And that's what's going to happen to sort of explain and rationalize the treatment of Merrick Garland, which is very telling to me. In some ways, it's kind of a cheap chit to get, right? Because the likelihood of that happening is, you know, not super high, right? So he gets to have the benefit of sounding reasonable and saying it's a rule of neutral application that applies to Democrats and Republicans, not depending on who has the Senate majority. And he doesn't have to, you know, his bluff doesn't have to be called because the likelihood is not that high. What, what, do, you make, what do you make of that? Why, why, would, why would he say these things and put himself in such a bind like he's in now? Well, I think it's an interesting question as to why he said it in 2016. And part of it, I think, is because, you know, look, he's he's a was a prominent lawyer before he became a senator. And I think he sort of, you know, he's been on the Judiciary Committee for a long time. And so I think he just stepped into it um, and was probably asked frequently about it. But now the justification piece feels to me, look, there's a fundamental fairness piece to this. Like, And I think because it comes so close together in time, it's four years apart, I think all Americans should be asking the question, which is, why does Obama not get Merrick Garland, but Donald Trump gets to put in someone for Ginsburg's seat? And it comes down, as you said, simply to power. And all the arguments that they made in 2016 were lies, right? They were just basically, they should have just said, you don't have the power, we do, and we're going to block you. And they were not, they were dishonest about it. And so there are a lot of people, like with Graham, I sort of feel like, look, President Trump, he can't win with just his base, right? He needs some of the moderates. He needs some of the independents. And Graham may be able to win his election, but they just they just switched it from his election from Republican to Republican leaning. And so I think he has to be able to answer the question of why he's flip-flopped. You know, I don't understand completely why he entered the fray in 2016, except that, you know, I think he probably couldn't help himself and and sort of played has played a prominent role. But now I think he feels like he has to explain it because there are a lot of people who I think will just say like, look, fundamental fairness, this is this is like the the most obvious version of something being unfair and there's no legitimate argument for it. So that's just my my view, but you know, you make a great point. It's just weird to me because Graham said it 
and he said it in a way that that he wanted to express something about his own integrity because he didn't just say it. He said, "You can." He said, "You can use my words against me." That's a vestige of the Lindsey Graham that I think people used to know and that I used to know personally in the Senate of a person who wants to make people think he's a person of his word, that he has principle, he has integrity. And we should be clear that he has none. Like, at least in my view, at this moment in time, like, people of integrity and well, people not, of their yeah, word argue, do not do what he just did. not anymore, but I, I just, I find it endlessly fascinating that he decided to speak that way and in that language and challenge people to challenge him in the future as he's doing. And I think that when he goes home at night, he thinks to himself, how did I get myself in this spot? Because, you know, raw politics sort of trumps everything, so to speak. So... I was going to say the election is 42 days from today, but it's not. The election is happening now. The election ends 42 days from today. And I think a big strategic question for the president is, is he going to try to get his Supreme Court pick through and voted on by the election or during the lame duck session? And I think the odds of prevailing, I hate to say it, are pretty high ultimately, but they are lower if it's after the election for various reasons, right? I mean, we we have... Let's take stock of of where we are. There are 53 Republican senators, 47 Democratic senators pre-election. Only two Republicans have suggested they may have a problem with proceeding. Lisa Murkowski before the election, before the election, correct. And they they've sort of just to be clear on this, they've sort of they've sort of intimated that they don't think. I think Murkowski was more clear on this than Collins that there shouldn't be that that the president who's elected if if Trump is reelected they could move ahead but if if not that it should be the next president if it's Biden he, it should be Biden's pick but I will say this I I read at least particularly in Collins statement some wiggle room around oh, what happens after the election so like <laughs> she, she's she didn't it's very say, clear she yeah we had this conversation she could have just said yeah, she could have just said there should be the next president, whoever gets elected and is going to be sworn in in January of 2021, should get to pick the Supreme Court justice. Um, she did not say that. Well, what, the other thing she didn't say is, I mean, what she did say was, the, I think X should happen. She didn't say if X doesn't happen, I will vote a certain way. Like she didn't commit herself. She just she she was just like uttering like. You know, you have to read her words. It's a lot very of words, it, and it's a lot of words for something that is a pretty simple concept. So, where where I read those two, hundred percent certain is that they don't think that the vote should take place before November third, the election. That's that's as far as I would commit them. Yeah, but it's I, not clear I, to me that what Collins will do before. And also, she's in a very very tough race. Um, I think she's actually behind in, in many of the polls in her reelection campaign in Maine. But that's only two. So you need four. The Democrats need to pull away four to prevent a confirmation. And just to explain why you need four, because if you only had three, then Vice President Pence could come right. in. It's, right? it's 50 50, and, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, after the election, let's just do that hypothetical for a moment. A couple of things go on. If it is very clear that Biden has won quickly, and it is very clear that the Senate will be changing hands. Some people suggest David Frum is one of these people. I don't know how much I buy it, but let's contemplate it for a moment. David Frum and others suggest, you know what? Then the dynamic will change, and then the context changes, and then it looks even worse as a raw, obnoxious power grab when in a matter of days, you're going to have a new president, a new Senate, and if the, the undergirding principle of the McConnell rule from 2016 is 
let the people decide. Well, the people will have decided that they want something different. And they didn't want Trump to make the nomination and, and, and have his Senate and have his Supreme Court justice confirmed. That principle goes out the window. And will that cause some people in the Senate to change their vote? Now, have at it. Okay, so I love, <laughs> I love that David Frum is so um, trusting, uh, believing in the goodness of human of humankind, thinking that, um, and I do believe in the goodness of humankind, but I think there's an exception in politics to some of these, of the general principles of how people conduct themselves. Look, you know, should people feel exactly the way that Frum says after the election, if Biden wins and it's clear and it's quick? Completely. Yes. Will they? No. And again, it comes back to, we should be, we should also say, and we, we sort of, I think, maybe take this for granted, but people should understand that the Republican Republicans have been voting on the Supreme Court for years. It is part of why Donald Trump won the presidency. It is why, you know, the Republicans have won more elections than Democrats, right? In the last 53 years, there have been 34 years of Republican presidents, 20 years of almost 20 years of 20 years of Democratic presidents. What is really clear is that the Republicans, like when they send out mailers, political fundraisers, it's all about the Supreme Court. It's about abortion. It's about the right to life. It's about, you know, all basically taxes. It's But it really comes down to the power of the court. And I cannot begin to say how much I think that it's a brass ring for them to get this seat. It will make it a 6-3 majority Republican. It changes the dynamic. When it's 5-4, you just have to lose one. And we've seen that happen in the last Supreme Court term where Roberts sometimes voted with the four liberal justices, right? Think about the prior ACA case. Roberts voted with the liberal justices. Once you get six, that doesn't happen. You have a almost bulletproof conservative majority for the next 30 to 50 years, I would argue. And so they're not going to be able to resist. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, th- there, there are two other sort of little dynamics that I'll just mention, and I, I tend to agree with you. One is that in the Arizona race, Mark Kelly looks like he's going to win. You never know, but he's far up in the polls. And because that is a special election, I think it was for McCain's seat, Mark Kelly doesn't have to wait until January 3rd of next year to get seated. He can get seated later in November. And if the Supreme Court vote has not happened yet, that changes the numbers to 52-48, and then the Democrats only need three. And then I'll add one other thing, and again, I tend to agree with you, but there is a universe in which Susan Collins may have lost and know that she lost, and so she's a lame duck and her political career is over. Right, and then she just does the right thing. Yeah, but although we've already conscience. counted her as we've right. already counted her as a potentially one of the two. So, so either way, it probably it probably doesn't make the difference. So, further, what you were saying, Anne, about how sort of energized Republicans have been in the past over this issue of the court, it seems to me they don't have an advantage there this year. If you just look at the amount of money that came into Senate campaigns on the Democratic side since Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, it's kind of stunning, and I think the anger of how Merrick Carlin was treated and the anger at the possibility that a second seat will be taken based on the principle that Republicans announced back in 2016 has made Democrats really, really angry, really energized, parting with their money in the middle of a recession, and also understanding that this would be a swing way to the right, taking liberal justice and replacing her with a very conservative justice. With respect to the election, you know, I think it probably helps the Democrats take back the Senate and maybe helps the Democrats defeat Donald Trump, which is different from how people usually think about this issue. So I want to just argue against a couple of those points. And I think, look, 
I would say I'm with you on on one very big piece here, which is that I have never seen the Democrats as galvanized about the court as I think we've seen in the past week. You know, to your point, $91 million was brought in for Democratic candidates in the 28 hours after Justice Ginsburg passed away. That is an extraordinary amount of money. And so I think people have finally come to understand the the importance of the Supreme Court. And I can tell you, it is the environment. It is climate change. It is health care. It is women's rights. It is a woman's right to choose. It is elections. It is campaign finance. It is everything that we sort of talk about. The Supreme Court ultimately has the last say on most, if not all of those things. And so it is essential. So I think the Democrats, I agree with you. They This sort of feels to me like the first time that they've really mobilized around this. But I want to say the the counter to that, which I, I do not think we can underestimate, is that, first of all, the president, in my view, has done a terrible job handling the global pandemic, right? Handling in the United States, we're now at about 200,000, almost 200,000 deaths. It is the fourth largest mass casualty event in the history of the United States of America, right? And that's this includes the Civil War. That includes the Spanish flu of 1918. And so this is a distraction from the reality of the day-to-day of what is an absolute crisis happening on in our country right now. So that's one point. The second point is that I think the timing of the vote, I think that, you know, if the vote is after the election, that will really, really rile the base to get Trump reelected, to not want to risk anything. I tend to agree with you that the Republicans will move, try to move this before the election if they can, because you have the Mark Kelly seat. They're just, it gets, there is sort of even more of a stronger argument. They won't care, in my view, but there's, you know, it sort of builds some public some public pressure as time goes on. So, but I do think the the base is going to, I mean, they they already, I, th- I guess your argument is like, they already value this so much, the base already comes out on it, that it's not going to be a net difference. But I, I think the power of a of a tangible seat will really motivate the base. I think there are a lot of people who speculate that Mitch McConnell wants there to be a nomination and wants there to be a fight. And he himself, notwithstanding these other, you know, possibilities with Mark Kelly and whatever, that he may not want to have a vote before the election, because what's most important to Mitch McConnell is retaining the Senate. And to the extent that a vote before, you know, causing some of his more vulnerable members to have to take a tough vote in a purple state on a controversial nominee in a controversial context might hurt them. I mean, Mitch McConnell will do his analysis because he's smart about these things, but there is a good basis to think that for him, he may care more about retaining majority of the majority of the Senate than getting this particular nominee through. And if there's a balance between those things, it's not clear to me which one he would choose. So one of the things people are talking about with respect to what power Democrats have, they don't have much. And this happens, you know, every time there's a nomination and Democrats are in the minority, people say, well, why don't they do something? There's not a lot to do. Some people are suggesting more radical moves like threatening to, I'll use the word that other people use, pack the court. Um, that, That has bad connotations from the time of FDR. But there is a suggestion And it's being espoused and embraced by people who wouldn't have done that before. And that is to make clear that if you go down this road and Biden is elected and the Senate goes to Democratic hands, we will expand the court by two seats, three seats, perhaps more. And we'll expand the general federal judiciary also to to take back the two seats that they will say were stolen from us. Now, to, to be clear, Joe Biden has said on the campaign trail before. Action and reaction. Anger and more anger. 
sorrow and frustration at the way things are in this country now politically. That's the cycle that Republican senators will continue to perpetuate if they go down this dangerous path that they put us on. We need to de-escalate, not escalate. That's an argument people have been making about the filibuster being taken away with respect to circuit court nominees also. But it, look, it's something that I have not been in favor of. You know, Congress can decide how big the court should be. It's been nine justices in, since 1869. It is not, it's not a provision in the Constitution. It's something that can just be done by Congress. In years past, before 1869, Supreme Court had different numbers of members, sometimes six, sometimes nine, sometimes 10. And so they can change it. And they can change it with a majority so long as they change the filibuster rules about passing legislation, which is a, a different point of controversy. And I don't love it, but at some point when you've been mistreated and when people have said, as the president has said, if you've got the votes, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Well, what goes around comes around. Yeah, I think I think that this is absolutely going to be the debate we head into. And the one the one sort of distinction, I think, on FDR, although I, I'm not sure it's it's a strong enough distinction, but the FDR packing of the courts, like he, his New Deal legislation, everything he was doing was getting struck down, all his programs. And so he basically wanted to pack the court so that he could get his policies through. This feels less related specifically to one project or one policy than it does to a, f a question about like, what's the fair thing to do? I will tell you that what I worry about is what's to stop the next Republican aligned Congress and president from adding more justices. And then Nothing. it's like, where does this end? Yeah. Right. Well, that's Joe and Biden's so, point. Right. Right. And he, he's not wrong about that. So I think the question is like, are there other solutions? Like you've supported, and I find really interesting the idea of an 18 year term for Supreme Court justices, right? Like, so I want to say like, yes, let's have a conversation about what all the options are. Let's have a conversation about like, do we need a constitutional amendment, which I know is super hard to do, but like that sets in place some processes. Like, I just think like, I don't want everyone to rush to the, we have to have more justices because look, what goes around comes around, to your point, and it can become destabilizing if every single time there's a different election, the Republicans add, the Democrats add. Like, I think we have to have a serious conversation about that. I'm not saying I'm, I'm I haven't taken a position on it because I want to look more at what the other options are, but I, I do think like it doesn't matter, and this just will lead into the the president's potential nominees. And it's been reported he's considering five women, and that he will put a woman on the court. It doesn't matter which one of them it is. It will have a profound and devastating, in my view, impact on a lot of the things that we care about in this country. And, you know, climate change, we don't have 30 to 50 years to wait, right, to have significant environmental regulations in place that will protect the environment. A woman's right to choose, like we've already seen Roberts set it up in the past term in order to sort of have states come back and put more and more restrictions on those rights. Like, all of that will happen. The ACA is the argument. It's a week scheduled for a week after the election. Um, the Affordable Care Act, whether or not the whole act has to be struck down. My view is on the law that should it should be rejected completely. The Trump administration's claim and their attempt to strike down the ACA should be rejected completely. But you know, once the court, even if it's four four, you get another conservative justice five four. That could also be struck down. And so I think people have it's to understand to how. Yeah, it's really important. Like, this is healthcare for pre existing conditions. This is healthcare for 20 million plus Americans. Like, all of that can be taken away literally with the stroke of a pen by the United States Supreme Court. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think any option can be off the table, but I think, I think we have to be realistic about 
what those options, it's it's not one move, it's a chess match and it's a long-term, you have to think 10 steps out. There's a lot of frustration with respect to how Merrick Garland was denied his seat and how they're going to ram someone through after Judge Justice Ginsburg passed away. But that's on top of sort of just this historical anomaly that I talked about last time when Brett Kavanaugh was being reviewed. And that is that there's been a disproportionate number of opportunities based on the vagaries of who retires when and who dies when for Republican nominations versus Democratic nominations. And, you know, by the way, we should remind folks that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's appointment to the court back in 1993, before that, there was a 26-year drought where no Democratic president was able to nominate someone to the Supreme Court. You had two Republican terms, right? Nixon and, I guess, concluded by Ford, during which there were several Supreme Court nominations that they got to make. Then Carter, four years, had zero, because nobody retired or passed away during Carter's term. Then you had 12 more years. You had two terms of Reagan and a term of Bush. So in that multi-decade period, no nominations and appointments by Democrats. So it's a combination of the belief that these seats have been stolen and also just, you know, bad luck kind of over time where there's disproportionate representation on the court by Republican nominees. So there's been no announcement yet. We understand that the president will wait until Friday or Saturday to appoint someone. But if there is one, we don't know about it as we record on the morning of September 22nd. Should we end by talking about a couple of folks? Do you want to make a prediction or... Yeah, do, I mean, here's what I'm going to predict. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I'm going to I'm going to make the simple prediction, which is the president has already said it's going to be a woman. It is going to be a woman. Um, I think there's a couple reasons why. Brave, but it's brave very predictions. Cl- brave predictions. Yes, man. I know, I know. But <laughs> basically, the president the president has he's having an issue with women, sort of moderates and independents, and so I think it will absolutely. He's already said it, but it will absolutely be a woman. I think it will absolutely be a circuit court judge. There are folks on the list. I mean, he's we know he's. Um, interviewed Amy Coney Barrett. She's 48. She is a circuit court judge, and she basically is a, she's a religious conservative, but again, she's already been confirmed by the Senate. She's not my, I don't think it's her. I mean, I may prove to be wrong because I think the president very much will want to do her, but I think, you know, she's talked about saying, she said that Supreme Court precedents are not sacrosanct. I mean, she basically, she will not pass. If Collins does have any test along the lines of, and it may not matter, but if Collins has clearly, any test. She's much more clearly uh, Going to vote to overturn Roe. Yes, yeah, yes. The but then there are others like Lagoa. I don't Barbara know if I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, Barbara can, Lagoa. Can I say that I think, I, I, think I, I tend to her. think it might be her. She's 52, also Same. very young. Cuban-American from Florida. Here's how I think about it. I I think about what people's motivations are and what thing they want to maximize. And for Donald Trump, the reason he cares about the court is because he cares about his election and he thinks it helps him get elected. And in a universe in which he wants to maximize confirmation, there may be one candidate that he could pick versus a universe in which he wants to maximize the likelihood that it will, his pick will will help him get elected or reelected. That might be a different person. And I think the idea of this, um, you know, pretty young, well-connected, well-spoken, 52-year-old Cuban-American in the very important state of Florida is irresistible to him. I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, she she sort of in my mind, and also, look, she is an accomplished 
lawyer, right? I I disagree a lot with some of her views. She's a member of the Federalist Society. Um, she's close to the Florida governor, but she's been a state court. She was put on the, the Florida state court by um, Ron DeSantis, Governor DeSantis in Florida. She's been a circuit court judge. She got through her confirmation. It was 80 to 15 in her Senate vote. So she got 80 votes. So I think in some ways she's, you know, she's in a very, very strong position. I want to make one interesting question or sort of argument, which is that there are also, there are two very young women, Britt Grant, 11th Circuit, close to Kavanaugh. She clerked for him and she was a former Georgia Supreme Court justice. And Allison Jones is 38. She is a, you know, again, very conservative. She's been called during her confirmation hearing, was called a young ideological extremist. But, you know, when you think about people who are very young, it means for a lifetime appointment, they're on the court for even longer. And so I sort of, I'm with you on Lagoa. I feel like that would be the general move that someone like Trump would make um, for a variety of reasons. But I don't fully count out him going with somebody who's younger just to have longevity um, on the court. You know, you know it sucks. There, there, it's so hard for gonna, me to. It's so there's so much. There's going to be. <laughs> it's so hard for me to. There's pick a one decent thing. chance that the next Supreme Court justice is going to be someone younger than me, which is just a mark of my age. <laughs> yeah, same, same. We're not in our golden years yet, but you know. But look, this is this is part of the game. And to your point on the potential 18-year terms, and I'm not saying that's a perfect solution, but then the age thing, it becomes less about the game of, you know, who do you get on that will last the next 40 or 50, 60 years. So, Preet, just as we're talking about the Supreme Court, can we just use a Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote, which was when she was asked about when there'll be enough women on the United States Supreme Court, she said, quote, <laughs> when I'm sometimes asked when there will be enough, and I say, when there are nine, people are shocked. But there'd been nine men, and nobody's ever raised a question about that. RBG. Well said. Well said by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So I hope people will take some time to remember her life and her contributions and her service. I think there are going to be some services this week and we'll be back with you next week where I'm sure there will be many developments in the Supreme Court confirmation battle. We will probably have a nominee and we'll take it from there. So we'll keep covering the story week after week after week as it develops. If you want to hear future episodes and you're not already a member, you can become a member at cafe.com insider. To all our insiders, as always, thank you for supporting our work and for staying engaged. And please continue to send us your questions to letters at cafe.com. That's it for this week's Insider Podcast. Your hosts are Preet Bharara and Ann Milgram. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, Nat Wiener, Sam Ozer-Staden, David Kurlander, Noah Azulai, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the CAFE Insider community. 